Welcome to the Food Junkies Podcast. Here, we aim to provide you with the experience, strength, and hope of professionals actively working on the front lines in the field of food addiction. The purpose of our show is to educate you, the listener, and increase overall awareness about food addiction as a disease with abstinence as the solution. Here, we talk about all things recovery. Most importantly, how to thrive rather than just survive. So stay positive, make a change for yourself, tell others about your change, and hopefully the message will spread. Hey there, Food Junkies listeners, Molly here. Okay, today, Clarissa and I interview Dr. Joy Jacobs. Dr. Joy Jacobs is a clinical psychologist, assistant clinical professor at University of California, San Diego School of Medicine, and published author who provides individual, family, and group therapy for adults, adolescents, and children with eating disorders, including anorexia nervosa, bulimia nervosa, and binge eating disorders, food addiction, and weight management concerns. She has trained in multiple treatment modalities, including family-based therapy, dialectical behavioral therapy, cognitive behavioral therapy, and interpersonal psychotherapy. Dr. Jacobs is one of the few officially certified providers of family-based treatment for eating disorders nationwide and internationally. Dr. Jacobs regularly appears on various media outlets, including The Doctors, Fox 5 San Diego, and has been expert cited in many national publications, including Elle, U.S. News and World Report, The Today Show, and more on the issues of eating disorders, body image, food addiction, weight management, and related topics. Joy is the author of a blog sponsored by Psychology Today and Gers Books titled One More Bite. In this episode, we talk about Dr. Jacobs' personal and professional journey, how to help clients determine if they are experiencing emotional eating, disordered eating, eating disorders, and or food addiction, tools Dr. Jacobs uses to determine treatment plans for her clients, how Dr. Jacobs works with clients who may be incorrectly self-diagnosing food addiction, volume addiction, We talk about when self-worth is attached to weight and body size. We talk about differences in treatment for different genders, Dr. Jacobs' Glow Up with Joy program, and our signature question. Welcome, Dr. Jacobs. All right. Welcome to the Food Junkies podcast. We're so excited today to have Dr. Joy Jacobs with us. Welcome. Thank you so much. It's great to be here. So can you share with us a little bit about your personal journey, maybe any aha moments you had along the way? And did this then your personal journey morph into a professional journey? Can you share your story with us? Absolutely. I will try to make a very long story short as I just turned 50 last week. So there's a lot of time to cover, but in a nutshell, I was a chubby child who wanted to be a ballet dancer. And that's kind of where my story began. And I developed anorexia at the age of 10 and then briefly recovered from that and then suffered from various forms of eating disorders from the ages of 17 to 24, at which point I nearly died from bulimia and entered into recovery. And that became ultimately the inspiration for my professional career because during you know, that nearly decade of barely a day without release from some sort of eating disordered behavior, I really thought that I was incurable and I was seeking all the help. It's not like I was sitting at home wishing for help. I was actively seeing psychologists, psychiatrists, nutritionists, spiritual healers, yoga teachers, meditation teachers, body positivity activists. I was exploring all of it and nothing was really helping me. And so when I actually found the miracle of recovery, it became for me as if there was no other option. And at that point I had a degree from Harvard law school. I was uh, graduated from with honors from Duke university. I, I didn't need to go down this path to make a living, but it became actually impossible for me to do anything else because I truly knew that recovery is possible. And I also was aware of how deep and pervasive the suffering can be. And I really felt like you know, this was my life purpose for better or for worse. 
So I ultimately went back to school and got a PhD in clinical psychology and started focusing on research related to eating disorders and clinical treatment as well. And eventually with Dr. Walter Kay helped to start the UCSD Eating Disorder Treatment and Research Center and developed their family program and initiated their DBT program and then branched off onto my own, helping people with all various forms of eating disorders and food addiction. So let's, yeah, let's jump right into that then, because that's Clarissa, you know, mentioned when we, before we started recording, we're both clinicians. We work at the intersection of eating disorders and addiction, specifically food addiction, um, but certainly other addiction outlets as well. We have those you know, we both come from backgrounds of working with folks with those kinds of Mm -hmm. issues. And so we really brought it to the clients that we work with. And that's why we were so excited when you said yes, because, because we need Clarissa and I think we feel like we want to create more, you know, communication between the camps of eating disorders and food addiction. And you really have jumped out as somebody who does that well. So can you kind of talk to us about how you help clients determine whether it's eating disorder, disordered eating, food addiction, like how do you do that? Great questions. And, you know, I do have to say that the intersection of these two fields, as you both know, is very challenging and very political and heated. And I basically worked in stealth mode, really helping people with both of these kinds of issues for probably about 10 years before officially coming out and saying, yeah, because, you know, the way that I was trained and I was trained at among the premier eating disorder research and treatment centers in the world by the people who developed the assessments that are used day in and day out to assess for eating disorders and was told point blank that food addiction is not possible that it is not a thing, that any kind of addictive eating patterns are due to restriction. And that is still pretty much the mainstream argument in the field as much as the science is starting to point in different directions. And so it's a really delicate, fine balance. And when a, a new client comes to me in my practice, you know, I'm just very into listening to their story and hearing what they have to tell me. Okay, let me back up a little bit. So we know that a primary treatment for food addiction in particular is abstinence from flour and sugar usually as they are the primary culprits to trigger addictive eating in most people. Now you couple that with an eating disorder and that looks like an eating disorder. That looks like restriction. And it becomes very difficult to parse out the two. So by hearing someone's story, I can start to piece together whether they truly are an addicted, addictive eater versus someone who is really struggling with deprivation, restriction, and is not truly addicted to some of these, you know, highly inflammatory and craving producing substances that are in our foods. And I think it takes a lot of listening and a lot of asking of questions. And so one of the ways that I use to start to tease this out is on some levels, I follow the client's lead, but then I also have to take my own expertise and experience and apply that to their situation. So Many people with eating disorders do not have food addiction and are able to eat substances with flour and sugar in moderation once they actually are able to give themselves permission to do so. In my experience, that only works as part of a very structured meal plan. And I believe that whether someone has an eating disorder or they have food addiction or they have both, key to their recovery is a food plan because that truly provides the guardrails for everything else. I mean, I don't know how anyone in this kind of toxic, addictive food environment that we live in could eat intuitively because it is truly, you know, these companies spend billions of dollars to trigger our brains into addictive eating, even if we are not necessarily wired to be addictive eaters. We can be become one just by the exposure to these, you know, really highly engineered foods. But I think the meal plan is the foundation. And then 
I typically will start out unless someone has a really strong history of food addiction and they are asking for an abstinence-based approach to treating it, I will typically start them on a meal plan that includes all foods, that doesn't necessarily exclude any category or any ingredient. And we start to gather evidence and data in this kind of controlled and safe environment about whether these foods can be eaten and eaten in a manageable way and enjoyed or whether they trigger something else. And so it's kind of an experience-based process where we try to really decipher, is this addictive eating pattern true food addiction or is it a result of deprivation and can be healed with moderation. How did you first even hear about food addiction and get interested in the concept coming from the field that you were predominantly in at that time? Where did you learn about it and start to get curious about, could this be so? I mean, I was just always very aware that eating even for myself in those days of being a bulimic or binge eater, truly felt addictive. It did not feel that I, like I had a choice. I tried all those approaches that encourage moderation and intuitive eating, and they made me far worse rather than far better. So by the time I became you know, a graduate student and a researcher and eventually a clinician, I was well aware that I, you know, there was a certain kind of party line in the field, but that was very different than my own personal experience. And I was also very clear that I couldn't be alone in that experience. And if you read, I loved reading eating disorder recovery memoirs and anything related to that when I was in my early recovery. And I remember from reading those books, seeing similar patterns. So I knew that it just could not be true. And so that just kept me kind of pursuing that path, even if others didn't necessarily agree, because I knew that there were enough people suffering in this way. I mean, why I really felt like I had to pursue this line of work as my career was I really wanted to crack the code. I felt like we have to be able to figure this out. And no one, I, I can't tell you how many, <laughs> how many hours and weeks and months I spent in ineffective therapy trying to heal my eating disorder. And I didn't want anyone else to have to go through that. I can so relate. That is a hundred percent my story too. And so it just, then it makes us so passionate about just giving people choices, empowering them to say like, you don't have to eat these foods if they don't serve you in the right way. But, you know, also being mindful that we do have some tools that we can use to clinically evaluate whether someone is coming in, maybe does want to be restrictive. So are there, are there particular tools you use to evaluate clients to kind of suss out whether it may be an eating disorder that's presenting like food addiction? Um, you know, it's mostly from hearing the client's stories and asking them questions, but a really awesome clinical tool is the eating disorder examination that allows you to just get really clear data about specific eating disordered behaviors and loss of control, binge episodes, evaluate body image, all of these different areas. It gives, it starts to give you a picture, but then I think it does require clinical judgment and experience to kind of apply to this person's, because again, someone could have binge eating disorder and truly not be a food addict. A majority of binge eaters also have food addiction, but there are some binge eaters who, when given a meal plan and given support and certain foods in certain amounts can be binge free and for the long term. So I think that both the eating disorders field and the food addiction field can be overly doctrinaire about specific approaches and viewpoints to the disservice of people who are seeking help. And I really sometimes end up pleasing people in neither field because I'm not 
all one or all the other. It really, to me, is about serving the client to their highest good and whatever that entails, it entails. And just because I do something or don't do something doesn't mean that they need to do something or not do something. I think one of the biggest mistakes that clinicians in the field make, especially those who have had recovery, is they assume that what worked for them will work for everyone and what didn't work for them will work for no one. And that is just not true. So we, we have this great experience to draw upon, but we have to draw upon more than our own experience for sure. So beyond the food, you know, so there's like hearing the story, hearing out the client, maybe doing an EDQ, something along that beyond the food. How do you determine like a client treatment plan? Like actual recovery? Like how do you, how do you, you know, is it more conversations and, and just checking things out with the client? You know, do you have kind of like a preset idea of like a path somebody needs to take? Can you kind of talk us through your process? Yeah. I mean, I think it depends on what the person's symptoms are that they're presenting with, and there are a variety of paths to go down. But I think that one of the key elements that is often ignored in recovery is mastery of the nervous system or even awareness of the nervous system as a starting point and how to learn to self-manage because ultimately, whether it's restriction or binge eating or everything in between, oftentimes it does start from a desire to either numb out or regulate the nervous system in some way to find relief and food has become the vehicle or lack of food has become the vehicle for relief. So I feel like most patients, no matter what their diagnosis ends up being, if there ends up being a diagnosis, most people who walk through my doors virtually (laughs) will benefit from this because we as humans need this and we're not taught in school or usually by most parents, how to regulate our nervous system. And I feel like this is the hidden missing key that is the ultimate game changer for almost everyone. So that's kind of a foundational piece, although we may not get to it right away. And then it's about, like I said, I know we said we're not going to talk about food, but developing a meal plan, whether it's an abstinence-based meal plan or some other version of a meal plan. That's super important. And really developing that connection and the feeling of safety and trust. And I think, you know, by the time most of my clients get to me, they may have been also trying to find recovery for maybe even decades for really long periods of time. So it's hard for people, I think, to trust any process or even to trust a clinician because they've feel so burned by what they've been through already. And I do believe that eating disorders, food addiction, particular, particularly anyone who has struggled with their weight, there is trauma associated with that. And I believe it's trauma with a capital T. And so we have to really fully address that kind of trauma and create a space that feels truly safe and supportive it will typically require taking our eyes off the scale for a period of time for many people, unless someone is at a particularly low weight where we need to actually monitor them for medical safety. One of the biggest mistakes that is made is immediately trying to please clients by giving them a plan that's going to allow them that they think will allow them to lose weight right away, which can be really, really counterproductive and slow down the whole recovery process. It doesn't mean that weight can't be addressed, but it's usually in my experience, a big mistake to address that initially. Oh, I'm excited because we're definitely going to ask you about the weight more later on in the interview, but I am wondering if clinically you see individuals who present with food addiction, who go off the ultra processed sugar flour and then start using volume. And, you know, we've really framed it as volume addiction on our show. Molly and I have been talking about it and we're like, maybe there's just some nutrient deficiencies that like we're trying to refeed the body 
Is it a nervous system regulation? Are we waiting for ghrelin and leptin to kind of, you know, sort out? Is it the stretch of the stomach, serotonin? Like, what are your thoughts on volume addiction for those people? And how do you work with those individuals that experience that? It absolutely is a thing. And I think it's all of those things, right? It's hormonal, it's behavioral, it's psychological, it's emotional, it's habitual, and it's really tough. And so this is once again, why this meal plan, putting a meal plan in place with actually specific quantities is so powerful. Because again, if we've been binge eating or eating addictively, even if we clean out those toxic substances from our diets. If we're still binge eating, even if it's on broccoli, it's not good for us. And I think that there is a certain mentality. I mean, one of the most popular approaches to eating over the past 20 years has been based on truly the amazing work of Barbara Rolls and Volumetrics. And she's an amazing registered dietitian and professor, and she developed this plan called Volumetrics, and it encouraged people to eat more volume with less caloric density as a way to feel full and satisfied and be able to manage their weights. So people have taken that and kind of not knowing where it comes from and intuitively found it on some levels, but there's volume and then there's volume, right? And so when we're talking about binge portions, right, really unusually large amounts of food eaten in one sitting and a need to do this again and again and again, it becomes very painful and damaging and harmful. And I think it's related to all those things that you talked about, stomach stretching, leptin, ghrelin, serotonin, habit, psychology, all of it. And so to me, the best way to heal this is through that structured meal plan, but it has to be a meal plan that really allows people to eat enough that they don't feel the need to binge, that it really is not one for most people, especially if they're recovering from binge eating to start out in a caloric deficit is pretty much a recipe for disaster. Do you then see people, because what I have noticed in private practice is that eventually people do get the ability to start to trust themselves and their body again. And that sometimes it can be challenging because they're not sure they can trust themselves because now they've developed this relationship with the food scale and they're not sure if they can let go of the food scale because then the volume might start creeping in. How would you work with an individual in that situation? Well, I think that's something that's really helpful and particularly helpful for people who have both eating disorders and food addiction is actually not to use a food scale, but to decide maybe they weigh the food once or twice when they're first learning and then they know how much it takes up on their plate. I mean, that does require some self-responsibility for not allowing portions to creep, but transitioning to, okay, I know that I feel my bowl this this much full of this particular food and this is what a right serving is so we go over that really specifically of like how much on your plates and in your bowls etc how much food is the right portion and so that's not a specific weighed quantity but it is measured in some way and as long as we stay consistent with it I think that's a great way to kind of also transition away from a food scale to more of a, you know, self-trust based system that still honors the challenge that any kind of food addict faces when trying to deal with portions, especially with binge eating. Do you find then with that, with the volume eating portion control, whatever labels we want to put on it, you know, do you find that then teaching your clients how to eat, like whether it be mindful eating or regulating central nervous system kind of stuff, like, does that ever go into the work that you do? And do you see that then kind of playing out as far as like that volume piece resolving down the line, or can that be one pathway to resolving a volume addiction, so to speak? I think that it is a multimodal remedy, to be honest. I don't see volume addiction. I have not really witnessed it in any of my many, many clients. I have not 
seen it disappear without being specifically addressed. Now, these other tools like mindful eating, nervous system regulation, they are all supportive in allowing people to actually measure out their portion and stick to it and not go back for more and being able to sit with the discomfort that it initially takes to break those really entrenched habits. So I think it requires all of those things, but I think it must be specifically addressed. I, I personally have not seen it just kind of disappear. Now, the cases where it does seem to disappear more easily is when we start to make sure that the meal plan is balanced and it includes all food groups because this volume eating can also be you had mentioned nutrient deficiencies. And I do believe that, you know, when someone and and some people listening to this right now are not going to like what they're hearing, because again, this can be a really politicized space, but I find that particularly people who have fallen follow, for example, like carnivore plans for extended periods of times then start to binge because of the deprivation that they feel, whether it's, you know, nutrient-based or psychological or both. And once they can get over the hump of like transitioning and including all food groups that need to volume eat starts to dissipate. Or if people are trying to be grain-free, but their body actually needs grains and they're, they're not listening. And then they wonder why they're binging on vegetables and fruits and all these things. Sometimes just adding a few servings of one particular food group that has been left out really solves the problem. So I think that's always the first place to start, especially if someone is on a really restrictive or elimination-based diet long-term, that would be the place that I would start. Yes. So moving forward, because I I agree, I agree with all of that, but we definitely want to get to this next part because Mm -hmm. we, we really feel like of all of our guests, you're probably one of the more qualified individuals to answer our questions about weight. Okay. So we ask this often of colleagues, you know, not even on a recorded interview of colleagues we ask in recorded interviews you know, in the eating disorder world, we know there is a lot of conversation for those folks who need to weight restore. Mm -hmm. Meaning for anybody who's listening, who doesn't understand what that means, maybe they are at a weight that is dangerously too low and they need to add weight to their body so that their body functions in the way that it needs to function, right? All their organs, brain, um, and that they don't continue to run a risk of having health effects or even passing away. However, when we ask the question about our clients who have very real medical needs on the other end of the spectrum, how do we address losing body fat and visceral fat, you know, those kinds of things, I think that there's, because everybody is so cautious not to create disordered eating or exacerbate eating disorders, I think everybody's so afraid to talk about weight loss because of diet culture, which yes, amen. Like there's, there's gotta be a nuance to it. So how do we do it? Dr. Jacobs, like, how do we have these conversations with our clients? We get it. It's not the first thing we want to talk about. I mean, Clarissa and I are there. It's not the first thing we want to talk about. We've got to get you abstinent into recovery before we can even go to that place. But that conversation does come up and I don't want to continue to be the person that sticks my head in the sand and says, Oh, we're not talking about that. That's not recovery. And that's not my lane. How do we have these conversations and support our clients? in these goals and and these desires that they have in pursuit of health. Absolutely. And that's such an important topic and question. And even if, you know, the fact that you're aware of how sensitive this topic is shows just how, you know, the great work that you're doing. Most patients, I think, or clients, however you want to frame it, By the time they get to us, they've been shamed by so many doctors, and this is nothing against doctors. There are some incredible caring and sensitive physicians out there, but I would say that most of them are not trained in how to have these conversations, and this is usually the first place that people will hear that their weight needs to be addressed on a medical, from a medical perspective, and there creates a lot of shame from that. And avoidance of the medical system and medical care, which ends up being very damaging to people. And even if we don't want to 
trigger anyone or shame anyone by not bringing it up. It's usually a primary concern of the people who are coming to see us. And we have to create a space where they feel, at least in my opinion, safe to talk about all of it. And I usually have to be very adamant to, with people about putting weight loss on hold, not forever, but we, it's just so clear from the science that it is almost impossible to heal binge eating while in a caloric deficit, no matter what your weight is, whether it's a hundred pounds or 200 pounds or 300 pounds being in a caloric deficit triggers that starvation brain. And the response of the starvation brain is to binge eat. It's a survival mechanism that no longer applies in the world that most of us live in, but it gets triggered. So it's, I believe, a really stepwise and staged process. And I think one of the most helpful things that we can do as clinicians is to create a bit of a roadmap for the client and let give them, we can't give a hard and fast timeline because each person is different, but ballpark, okay, we're probably going to spend the next three months stabilizing your eating, eliminating binge episodes. And it's pretty compelling because if someone stops binge eating, they're not going to continue gaining weight for the most part and they may lose weight. So it starts to address the weight concern, but not where it is the sole focus and energy. And then once we find a meal plan that really supports abstinence from binge eating, and there's some stability for that for a while, and we can work on the psychological level and create some healing, that's a great place to start looking at, okay, like how can I start to move towards some of my weight goals as well? And it is possible. I, I do a very slow tapering process with people, but when we do that, they've been abstinent eating for a minimum, usually of three to six months. And people feel the miracle of that, of abstinence from binge eating. And so we're, we're really on the same page because once you have that abstinence, you don't want to do anything to risk it falling apart. That's for sure. Yeah. You're so right. It's all, you know, they come to you about the weight loss and then they stay for the abstinence and the recovery because it just feels so good. So Looking a little bit down the line, I know that although maybe our clients haven't released this the amount of weight that they had hoped, and we all know the body has a set point. And for some of the individuals we work with, you know, their self-worth can be directly tied to their body size. How do you work with individuals who are in larger bodies and bodies that don't feel like home? And because of that, there's there they feel like they have no self-worth. It's a process and I this was one of the things that inspired me to develop a new program which we'll talk about later but people need really focused help on this. I don't think a few sentences of like you know you're not your body size, you're not your number on the scale. We can say that but they really do start to feel like clichés. And so I think that one of the things that has been really pivotal in me helping people with this particular issue is teaching people how to shift their energy and understanding that, you know, the value system that has been in place for them for all these years in terms of what their body shape or size means in terms of their self-worth can be changed. And that is in their power. And it's in the power to change that right now, not 50 or a hundred pounds from now, not six months or a year from now. And that ultimately, once we shift our energy around our self-worth, some of the changes that we haven't been able to make ever start to happen because we're not coming from a place of self-hatred, self-judgment, of terrorizing ourselves with negative self-talk and hoping that that's going to motivate us not to binge eat every night. It ends up, right, the opposite of people, that negative self-talk, which can feel motivating for a couple of hours at the end of the day leads to another binge. So I, I think what you're really talking about is like, taking that extrinsic or outside force of the number on the scale, the size on my jeans, 
what the doctor is telling me at the, at the office when they're telling me my BMI is too high or something along those lines. And that you're getting your clients to shift it to a more intrinsic or internal motivation, self-worth, self-love. Can you, I mean, just for kicks and giggles, can you maybe tell us, like talk about one of the tools or tactics that maybe has, you've seen have great success when working with clients to move from that external to internal motivation place? I think the first thing is having a discussion about worthiness and where does our worthiness come from? And that just by being here, each and every one of us is intrinsically inherently worthy. And we have been trained by the world to believe that we are only worthy if we look a certain way, weigh a certain amount, have a certain amount of money, have a certain professional status. And all of that is just bullshit. And, you know, excuse my language. I hope you don't mind. You know, one of the the biggest parts of my own personal journey has been a spiritual one. And I've always been spiritual all of my life, but it really took on a different level about 10 to 12 years ago when I felt like the tools of Western psychology were so limited in what they could do to bring people healing. And I really wanted to help all of the people that I work with experience complete healing. And I became a student of A Course in Miracles. I ended up getting a certification in Kundalini Yoga and Meditation I got to meet Louise Hay and I became a student of her work. I developed some health problems, which her work, and I'm going to give a shout out to Alia Cadro, who took care of Louise in the last years of her life and was her healer. I got to work with Alia and she helped me and that totally shifted my perspective on the mind-body connection and brought in a whole host of tools that are truly affirmative and supportive and empowering because dealing with disordered eating food addiction is a form of chronic illness and it's not labeled as such. I think unlike even other addictions, people still see eating behavior as a choice and on many levels, it is not a choice for many people. And so I think we need every single bit of support from the universe and from various disciplines to bring healing. And so those have been really important to me in terms of being able to transmit something to people that they cannot get anywhere else. And I can say that with confidence because again, each of us has our own path. And so the people that need, I trust that the people that want and need that kind of healing will come to me. And the bonus is, is that I also have you know, the PhD and clinical faculty at UCSD. I, I'm scientifically based as well, but science alone is not enough. Clinical guidelines are not enough. Loving support and attention aren't enough. They're all important components, but we've got to bring various disciplines together to bring healing. And so I think EFT, emotional freedom technique, has been a really powerful tool for my clients. And it was something when I first learned, I learned it as part of another training I was doing. I didn't think I would ever use it in my practice. I didn't necessarily resonate with it or think it was that powerful, but it has become one of the most powerful techniques for my clients and something that I have come to love. That's so great. I'm wondering what your thoughts are on some of these extreme food plans like carnivore and maybe fasting and, you know, what, where do you think this, this has kind of come from? Is it still that diet mentality and for individuals with eating disorders and food addictions, should they be extra mindful not to get sucked into that vortex? I think that is a really important warning because I have not seen anyone with an eating disorder or eating disorder history who does well long-term on a super restrictive eating plan. And I definitely don't advise fasting. Ultimately, it ends up triggering people. It may not be the first week or the second week, but it ends up really taking a toll. And I think that Along with that becomes the need to be obsessive about food and about eating. And 
it becomes this way. I feel like with intermittent fasting in particular with keto and carnivore, it becomes not for everyone. I don't want to make blanket statements, but for those to whom it applies, it becomes like this socially acceptable cover for disordered eating and something that people can say to their friends and family that kind of sidestep, is there a problem or is there not? And I'm sure that there are some people who do better eating mostly animal protein and fewer of other things, but I would not say that it's the majority of people. And I think most people benefit from having a wide variety of foods and that's why we have them. So especially for people that I, my population, I'm immediately concerned when I hear about that. And I have seen a number of people who are even coaches helping people with food addiction, et cetera, following these plans, not doing well in their own recovery, and yet continuing to offer that advice to others. And that's where, you know, I really have to draw the line and I find, you know, nothing more concerning and alarming than that. Yeah. I mean, I think we've seen similar and not just with, like you said, like kind of like recovery coaches on that end of things, but just almost like the orthorexia thinking behaviors that develop out of that, like this new obsession where maybe it's creating something that didn't exist before. Like you said, not everybody with food addiction has eating disorder has an eating disorder and not everybody with an eating disorder has food addiction, but certainly you can see where it can create something that didn't exist before or exacerbate something that did exist. And while I do have clients who will say, listen, going full carnivore, just, it takes all the questions out of it for me. And so that's why it's so easy for me yet they're starting to now have guilty feelings over thinking about some of these foods that aren't even like, right? Like they don't fall into sugar or flour, which we would say, yep, those are probably lighting up your brain like a Christmas tree. They're more like recipes of like putting together some other stuff and they might include dairy or a vegetable. And now they're having guilt and shame feelings over even thinking about that. And in their brain, right? Like their logic is this is food addiction. I'm addicted to it. So of course I'm having these thoughts about it. And I'm going, that's, that's a product of restriction. That's not a product of the addiction. And so, so I agree, like it's, it's, it's so concerning. And then they're influencers and they're saying, Oh, I, I resolved my food addiction by going all carnivore and I'm, you know, this big around. And, (laughs) and it's just hard because, you know, as we know, like so much more goes into recovery than just the food. Yes, the food is a place to start, same as if this was alcohol or meth, we would need to remove those substances in order to be able to like have meaningful life outside of that. But just so, I mean, so again, just removing those things, folks, that doesn't mean that you're in recovery. Like we can be dry drunks, so to speak, with the food as well. So do you find that there is a difference in working with clients of different genders at all? And can you speak a little bit about that? you know, like, are there special considerations that we need to make when working with one gender over another? You know, my first, probably four out of my first 10 clients when I opened my private practice were teenage boys who had developed full-blown anorexia. And all of them were athletes who decided to start eating healthy and they were wired to become restrictors. I mean, for the the brain that is wired in that way, a diet does create anorexia. And that's whether you're a male or a female. And I think hopefully the barriers are lower now, but for men to seek treatment for eating disordered behavior is very difficult and the barriers are high. And, you know, the, the majority of programs are kind of staffed by women and attended by women. And it can be really hard to find your place, but you know, that is growing and changing and that's a great thing. So I think that, you know, what I've seen is that most men seem to be able to still find self-worth regardless of their body weight. Again, I'm speaking in generalizations, but I have seen that they haven't, men have an easier time still finding that self worth and other things that are making them happy with their lives, regardless of what their body weight is. And for women, that is much harder. 
So in some ways, I think it can be an easier recovery path for my male clients because they're more likely to ask for advice, listen to it, and then apply it. Whereas it's more complicated, I think, for many women. Can I also ask if you think maybe it has to do a bit with, I don't know, and this could just be my, (laughs) this could be my like, uh, you know, lens that which I see the world. But sometimes I wonder too, if that's because we as women, and again, I'm painting with a broad broad brushstroke here, but I feel like we as women are so much more accepting of people where they, right? Like, I don't know. I just feel like there is an acceptance from women to men that men do not necessarily have for women. You don't Mm -hmm. see women on Instagram and TikTok saying, if you can't fit through, you know, this six inch gap, I'm not taking you home tonight, but you see men doing that to women. And I feel like men, you know, have really embraced this like dad bod, you know, kind of like moniker and, and women are here for it. I mean, they've got the songs about big boys and this, that, and the other thing. And so sometimes I feel like men have been, have been gifted in some ways, the ability to own some of that a bit easier than women. I don't know. And maybe I'm completely off track, but I mean, could that also apply there? You know, it's an interesting observation that said, I, as a mom of twin 16 year old boys, I living in Los Angeles and being around their friends, they are very body conscious as well. So maybe on social media, you know, there's one perspective, but I think among the younger generation, it's challenging all the way around. Yeah. And if it's not body size, it's voice, right? And how much hair I have and like, am I growing a beard yet? And all of that. So I just had that conversation with one of them last week. Yeah. (laughs) See my beard. Do you see my beard? I'm like, (laughs) you're a man. Yeah. (laughs) So can you please tell us about this group? You're starting February 14th. I think you said the cost is $111. Let us know all about the group and uh, so our listeners can hear the juicy details. Oh, thank you so much for um, asking about it. It's called Glow Up with Dr. Joy, Ignite Your Sparkle from Within, and it's about inner and outer transformation. And ultimately what I've seen is that negative body image, distorted body image, struggles with body image. It's kind of like this linchpin thing that keeps people tied into their eating disordered behavior and food addiction. And if we can start to heal, you know, earlier I mentioned that we can shift our energy now. And then all of a sudden these behaviors that we've been trying to change for so long, we're able to do it. Because again, when we come from this negative judgmental space, it's hard to want to do the hard things, which is change our habits, whether whatever those habits are. And so this program is really designed to help people improve their self-confidence, their self-love, how they're taking care of their bodies and their physical appearance. Because that's the other thing is people feel like, oh, well, I'm this size and it's a size I don't want to be. And I'm not going to buy clothes that I like or do my hair or whatever would make me feel good because I look like shit anyway. I hear this day in and day out. And that's just not true. And the truth is when we start taking care of ourselves, mind, body, and spirit, everything else in our life, including our food and our eating start to shift. And so I really wanted to offer this as something that everyone, no matter what their weight, what their shape, what their size can benefit from. I mean, we live in a culture where truly billions of dollars are spent telling us that we're not okay. Most of us have been spending the past three years on Zoom, looking at our own faces for three years, finding all the different things that we need to fix about ourselves. And the truth is, again, we are inherently worthy and no one or very few people are telling us that. And so I wanted to provide a safe, loving, and hopefully joyful space for people to start to find this in themselves. So we're going to do this for four weeks. It's all going to be recorded. So if people can't attend live, they can watch the videos. There are going to be little practice things to do on your own. And I think more than anything, a community of people who can uplift and support and celebrate each other. 
That's amazing. We'll make sure to put all of the information in the show notes for folks too, to just like very easily be able to either contact you or click the link to be able to go register. And that starts February 14th, right? Yeah. Okay. Valentine's. Happy Valentine's Day to yourself. I love it. No, that's that's so good. That's so good. So where can our listeners find you? Awesome. Thanks for asking. Um, I'm at Dr. Joy Jacobs on Instagram, the doctor with the DR, and on Facebook. My website is drjoyjacobs.com. But I love Instagram, even though everyone's on TikTok. I haven't like taken the plunge yet. But those are the the places to find me. And you know, I, I think that part of my role in particular is also to just educate people, you know, as much as I support and provide guidance for the people that I work with, I feel like as much as that, we need to educate people so they understand how to be more self-empowered down the line. My job is not to train people to be dependent on me, but to build tools so they can go off and live their best and happiest lives. And I want that for each and every person who is listening today and to just hold on to that hope that recovery is possible. And we just, you know, it's not about how many times that we fall down. We just need to get back up and there is no perfect. And I think especially people recovering from food addiction and I love 12 step programs, but some 12 step programs can create this environment where it feels like you're either a hundred percent on or you're zero. And there's so much gray space in between, especially when it comes to food. We cannot be abstinent from food. Unlike drugs or alcohol or other addictions where we can go cold turkey, we have to eat each and every day. And that makes it one of the most challenging spaces to be in, in terms of recovery, but it is possible. And you just need to find those people who uplift and support you. I love that. Such a message of hope. So we do have a signature question and it is, if you could tell a younger version of yourself something about food addiction and or eating disorders in your case, what would you tell her? I would tell her that recovery is possible. It is so true. I didn't get that message early enough. And like now that I have gotten it and received it, it's like recovery is possible, then anything is possible, right? True. And I think that the other thing that I would tell her is that don't be ashamed by your struggles. You will truly help people because of them someday. Oh, I love that. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. It's just been such an honor and such a blessing. Thank you. Thanks for joining us this week on Food Junkies, Recovery from Food Addiction. Make sure to join our Facebook group, Sugar Free for Life Support Group, I'm Sweet Enough. You can subscribe to our show in iTunes or Stitchers. That way you'll never miss an episode. While you're at it, if you found value in this show, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would help us out too. Don't forget to pick up your copy of Dr. Tarman's book, Food Junkies, which is available on Amazon. If you have any additional questions, both Molly and Clarissa are food addiction professionals and work one-on-one with clients. You can find their websites and email addresses in the show notes. Be sure to tune in every Friday when our new episodes drop. As Vera loves to say, the power is ours. <laughs>